Welcome to the Functional Medicine Doc Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kurt Wohler, talking with experts in functional and integrative health and medicine, discussing critical information for improving your health and wellness to help you live a long, full life. Let's get to it. Hi, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Doc Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kurt Wohler. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, somebody I've known for over 25 years, going way back to the late 90s when I first saw Dr. Bill Shaw, PhD of Great Plains Laboratory, speak at a Defeat Autism Now conference in San Diego. So we've worked for many years alongside each other, lecturing at many conferences. I've used the Great Plains Laboratory testing for many years and have learned and continue to learn so much from Dr. Shaw. So I'm really excited about this conversation. So Bill, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Kurt. Great pleasure to be here. So we're going to get into organic acid testing. You have a a new paper that recently came out looking at palmitic acid, uh, HPHBA, secondary, you know, uh, uh, elevation, from HPHBA and other types of uh, phenylpropionic acid uh, derivatives. But before we get into that, g- give the audience a little background on yourself. How did you get into this work? Uh, you, you ran Great Plains Laboratory for 25 years or so. So we'll talk about that yeah. and get into this important topic. So really, it, the, the uh, organic acid test was something I had wanted from the very beginning of my career when I uh, even when I just graduated with my PhD, that was a, a major goal of mine. My my, the idea was, you know, mass spectrometry at that time was just becoming accessible to some degree, and and I thought using this technology, you'd be able to test every single biochemical that's inside a person by testing their urine, and uh, and so that was really my goal from. Uh, almost from day one. It was kind of ridiculous in a way, but the the very first day I started my first job, which was at CDC, my first question was, if I get the Nobel Prize, do I have to give the money to the government? <laughs> Can I keep it? <laughs> and the, the, uh, the, the uh, HR guy said, nobody's ever asked us that question before. That's going to take a while to find out. That's a good but, question. Uh, but I had started preparing for the organic acid test almost immediately. I I had started uh, setting it up in the, uh, the lab at uh, CDC, uh, looking at the uh, the uh, technology. And, and at that time, my the technology available was just for me was just gas chromatography. So the thing is, I got my hands wet. I found out what the uh, what the challenges were and realized that uh, uh, mass spectrometry would have to be used. And, uh, and, and, and so that, that was the way to go and, uh, and high-speed computers. And at that time, there was not uh, the technology to connect the computer to the mass, spec- uh, mass spectrometer. That came out later. And, uh, and so uh, from CDC, I, 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 I wanted to learn mass spectrometry, so I got a job in drug testing, which was uh, a, a place where 
mass spectrometry attached to computers were starting being used. And so I learned all about that, uh, you know, gained hands-on experience with that technology. And so, so really my, you know, setting up Great Plains, there was a lot of background stuff that had to be done, you know, to, uh, to prepare myself for the, uh, the challenge of setting up a laboratory that was going to look at um, not only genetic disease, but all disease to find out what the underlying uh, uh, causes of all disease with the idea that using a urine sample, you would be able to do that. And to some extent, I, I, uh, I accomplished that at uh, uh, Great Plains. Not every disease, but a lot of got viewpoints into uh, the underlying causes of a, a lot of uh, diseases. And, uh, and some of this stuff, of course, it, it just the, the, the information, the research really still hasn't gotten out there. You know, it takes a, a tremendous period of time for the learning process to go on and for this kind of information to get into the medical education and stuff like that. So, well, it's, it's a couple of. Yeah, it's a complicated test. I mean, I I mean, I taught the organic acid test seminar now for many years, and it's, it's there's so much to learn. I'm still learning. And when I first started using the O test, I remember having to reach out to you because I was so overwhelmed by the amount of information uh, that we got. And so, real quickly, by the way, why is mass spec so uh, so much more effective? Uh, and exactly what is mass spec for people who have never heard yeah. that? Um, why yeah. is that the preferred method for this type of testing? Yeah, it, it is because it is the most specific way of of uh, of identifying a compound. So other other things uh, uh, measure the ultraviolet light absorption or fluorescence or some other characteristic of the molecule. But all of the almost all those other technologies have interference. So mass spectrometry is one of the uh, few technologies available where there's almost no interference. You can't say 100%, but like 99.9%. So even if you have uh, chemicals that are uh, coming out on the same place on what is called a column that separates molecules, you can still uh, determine that there's uh, one, two, three, four, or maybe even five substances in a single peak. It's not a single substance. So it's highly specific. It's the most specific thing. So, you know, at the uh, uh, sporting events or the Olympics where they check for steroids, that's the technology that's mm, used okay. because it is close to 100% uh, uh, accurate. So you wrote a paper that I first looked at many years ago that was looking at uh, autistic, some autistic boys who had very high levels of fungal markers. And then you came, I don't know if it was before or after, you had another article looking at clostridia and specific compounds secondary to the existence of clostridia. And so we could talk for hours just about the fungal component, but I want to really keep our our conversation here focused on the clostridia component, component to get to your new paper. 
So when you came out with that information, we're looking at Clostridia. Most people think of Clostridia as Clostridia difficile, a bacteria that's primarily going to generate bowel disease of, of some form or another. But you discovered that certain Clostridia were producing other compounds that were having negative effects sort of outside the digestive system. Can you explain a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah. Yeah. So so they uh, so in preparation for the mass spectrometry organic acid test that I set up at the children's hospital in Kansas City, I did a tremendous amount of research on on all the genetic diseases. I talked to other laboratories that performed organic acids. Uh, and then I decided I was going to do more than the stand. So I added, uh, substances that were present as food additives and vitamins. And so some of the things were not offered and, and, and still made some of the things are still not offered by any other uh, laboratory uh, in the world. And so those, I, you know, so I wanted to have every single thing that could possibly uh, be tested included in the, uh, and the test. So, so to, so to, you know, open the scientific eyes, so to speak, and and um, and and so when I had done it, I was confident that I'd be able to solve new diseases, and so I went to the uh, there was a children's psychiatric hospital in Kansas City, um, and I, I uh, made an appointment with the uh, the medical director and told him about my new test and that I had something I thought would work very well uh, for, for, you know, for cases where they really didn't know what, what was causing the illness. And he said, I think I've got the perfect case for you. I've got a kid who's got uh, depression and um, attention deficit and oppositional defiant disorder, the kind of kid if you tell him to turn left, he goes right. If you say, uh, if you say stop, he goes. So he does the exact opposite of what you uh, ask him to do. He won't cooperate in any way. And and he sent a sample in, and and I saw uh, what what turned out to later to be identified as HPHPA. And uh, and so I thought, well, that was interesting. But the, the kicker was a couple weeks later, he deteriorated and had to be hospitalized. And they sent another a second sample. And this sample had a gigantic peak. It was the largest peak I had ever seen for any compound, like larger than uh, uh, phenyl ketones and the genetic disease phenylketonuria. So it was higher than most of the genetic diseases that, where you have gigantic amounts of the substance. And so at first I thought maybe I had uh, found a, a new genetic disease. But uh, you know the fact though that this compound was so gigantic, you, it blotted out all the other compounds. You couldn't even see them. It was like, so uh, I, I mean, a common value for some organic acids is like 20. Well, this was 10,000. So it was absolutely gigantic. So immediately I knew that I had found something important. The fact that that it was still slightly elevated when the kid was 
you know, an, an outpatient. But when he was hospitalized, it reached a gigantic level. Did you, so, did you I, know what HPHB was at the time? I mean, I knew you knew how to identify it from a, a chemical structure standpoint. But did you when you first did you understand the significance of it as far as what it did? Oh, chemically? Well, I, I just knew that it must be something extremely important yeah. and that it might. It, and so my first concern was that maybe it was a drug. But but anticipating this, I had actually developed a library of all like the common psychiatric drugs like phenothiazines and other uh, psychiatric drugs, because I thought maybe it's just a, you know, he's he's on drugs. And so this is a huge drug metabolite, but it wasn't. So I was able to find that it was not any of the common drug metabolites. And also it wasn't any of the genetic diseases. So it either had to be something new uh, and 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 I I talked to the leading people in the field of organic acids, people that were known worldwide for organic acid testing, and uh, and they they said either I have no idea what this is when I showed them the mass spectrum, or or uh, uh, either I have no no idea what it is, or it's something from the microbiome. Which mm -hmm. I don't think that name was even used. I just said. Wow! So they they acknowledge that, that and that's interesting. Yeah, but they said it's not an abnormal. For, uh, uh, it's not. It's not due to any genetic disease. So just forget it. You know, oh. it's not worth pursuing. So luckily, I completely ignored that and started making that the focus of my research from then on. And uh, hey, by the way, and, do, you, do you remember what happened in that with that child? From that first test to the second test, would they, did they get put on antibiotics of some sort, or you, you remember any specifics? I I I, I do not. That okay. would I mean that's a that's a, a great question, but at that time, uh, I, I I I did not. I you know so my you know at that point I just had to say uh, report back that the child was negative for all organic acid. Uh, right. abnormal, uh, uh, genetic abnormalities. He did not have any of those. So where did you make the connection then between, so HPHBA coming from, which you eventually found was coming from clostridia, certain types of clostridia uh, bacteria. As we mentioned, most people think of clostridia as clostridia difficile, and that right. produces its own compounds, but the HPHBA comes from different types of clostridia. When did right. you start making the connection of, hey, this is something really bad, and it appears to be doing X, Y, and Z in a certain selection yeah. of patients, and yeah. here's the mechanism for it? When did that start to evolve? So, so with my, uh, I had developed some knowledge of in uh, mass spectrometry interpretation uh, by this time, and so I was able to find, you know, I, I realized it was a phenol, which means it has a benzene ring, a six carbon ring, uh, and uh, a OH, a hydroxyl group attached to it. And, uh, and, and so, which is also a, a structure that's similar to the uh, neurotransmitters. So I thought, well, this could be very significant because it may be it's interfering with somehow with neurotransmitters. So, so I had a, 
a rough idea of what the structure was at that time. And, and then I, I was noticing that it was also present in a lot of the kids with autism and eventually found it was, uh, it was significantly higher in the autism population, you know, doing about something like 60 kids with autism uh, who were, uh, had high values and, uh, and, uh, and it wasn't high in uh, normal children. So that, that uh, became uh, uh, significant. And then from uh, then uh, later on, I did a, I, I did a test of since I was looking at the effect of yeast and fungus, and 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 so there was a first a study. It was a formal research study that was, uh, you know, um, approved by the uh, uh, by the uh, board at uh, at Children's Mercy, and we and what I so we gathered twenty three kids with autism and put them on nystatin. And uh, a lot of the compounds that I thought were due to yeast and uh, yeast or fungus indeed were, and the values of those compounds dropped after the kids were on nystatin, except for the compound which I now call HBHBA. It actually went up after being on nystatin. So to me, that proved it wasn't a yeast or fungus; it was likely a bacteria. And just about that time, I had a parent who had sent in her child's result, um, and um, and and uh, and uh, named Ellen Bolte, and uh, her child had a uh, severe regression after getting the DPT shot, uh, and so so she thought that it was the. Uh, the tet, perhaps the tetanus in the DPT shot had caused an abnormal reaction because she looked at like some, what are some of the clinical symptoms of tetanus? And some of them are, you know, you know, the person has difficulty talking, you know, some of the same things that are present in, uh, in, uh, uh, in autism. So she, she thought that maybe the tetanus shot was actually contaminated with live tetanus bacteria that they didn't sterilize it enough and so her child had developed a, a kind of a subclinical tetanus and so she suggested that it may be a a uh, a tetanus bacteria and tetanus of course is a, a clostridia bacteria so i started looking at clostridia bacteria and uh, and then eventually i found I, I knew what like 99% of the structure was. The only thing I didn't know, I knew all the atoms that were in the molecule, but I didn't know exactly how they were arranged. And there were probably about a hundred possibilities of how something with all, you know, I could get, like it has so many carbons, so many hydrogens, I could get all that information using advanced mass spectrometry that I had to farm out to a research company, and and uh, and 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 so now I needed to uh, now I needed to know uh, how would this relate to Clostridia bacteria, and I was now able to know 
that it was a compound called a phenylpropionic acid. Well, phenylpropionic acids, I did more research that was in the literature and found that phenylpropionic acid is produced by uh, uh, eight, eight species of Clostridia bacteria. And uh, tetanus is not one of the ones. So I was able to rule out the idea of Ellen Bolte that uh, tetanus was somehow related. But interesting enough, one of the things that was found was uh, 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 the, uh, the one that causes the food poisoning, botulism, is one of the ones that does produce the uh, phenylpropionic acid. So I was able to figure out, you know, I, I was very good at metabolic pathways and was able to figure out that the chemical that was in the uh, gigantic amounts in the kid and in kids with autism would be converted to HPHBA. I was able to figure out using my knowledge of human biochemistry that the phenylpropionic acid produced by the clostridia would be converted in the human to HPHBA. And um, before so we that, go, that was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was say before we go down because um, the we're we're stepping into the area that I really want to investigate the phenylpropionic acid HPHBA those fatty acid metabol uh, those those pathways. Before I do that, I, have, I actually have a question for you. So. You know, going way back when I first did my first organic acid test, you helped me with a child who had pervasive developmental disorder. He had high levels of uh, candida, the arabinose. We put him on nystatin. He did a gluten casing for diet, eventually lost his diagnosis. But I remember a, a particular case years later was a child that had all the characteristics of yeast candida overgrowth, goofy, giddy, silly, inappropriate laughter, high self-stimulatory behavior. And so I said, well, I don't really need to run a test. I already know what this is. So this is candida. So I put him on Nystat. And within three days, he went from goofy, giddy, silly, inappropriate laughter to aggression, self-injurious behavior, headbanging. I had had some experience at that time seeing that behavior being linked to clostridia. But in this particular case, I decided not to do the test. I assumed, right? And it was a total Jekyll and Hyde moment. Treated him for the clostridia or what I thought was, eventually confirmed it later. So my question to you is, and I've not been able to figure out the mechanism, but we've talked about this. I know you've seen this pattern too. And I'm wondering in that particular individual, where you gave them, they gave, went nystatin, the yeast markers dropped in the oat, but the HPHBA goes up. Do you know the mechanism of what's happening? What, what? I think it's, I think it's just, it's fighting, or? it's fighting for food and space. I right. think that's really, yeah. that's, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, the organisms are uh, in a competitive ecosystem in the GI tract. And, and so, uh, when the yeast uh, compete to keep down the amount of clostridia, when the yeast are eliminated, the the clostridia just uh, takes off. So, right. and the same thing, of course, happens uh, if you give um, uh, anti antibiotics. So, clostridia is not killed by the common antibiotics. So, if you give things like penicillin or uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, and and other antibiotics, they they um, things like uh, uh, the the uh, the common uh, uh, strep and staph and uh, organisms like that may be killed, but uh, Clostridia is not, and so it just goes to town. And the same thing happens with the glyphosate. Glyphosate kills all the beneficial bacteria, but does not kill uh, uh, most of the clostridia or all the clostridia species that have been evaluated so far. They actually proliferate. And to me, this proliferation is is one of the large ecological problems uh, uh, in the whole world. It's one of the biggest problems because continuing to spread glyphosate uh, throughout the whole world is transporting the soil from uh, normal, healthy soil to contaminated soil so that all the soil we're using for farming is becoming contaminated. Even cattle uh, uh, eating the, the grass are dying of things like botulism because they, of the use of glyphosate. So this is one, I mean, it's almost equal to the uh, climate uh, problem uh, on the earth. And so it's, it's, and it's, this one, of course, is, is caused by human technology. So the right. idea that humans can just change technology at, at random is just, uh, it's just uh, amazing. So it's one of the things like that you don't want to make a gigantic change in our ecosystem without very, very carefully looking at what may happen as a result. So I'm going to come back to that and uh, that topic. I know uh, acetaminophen comes into this as well. So real quickly before we move on, I'm going to talk about HPHBA dopamine beta hydroxylase, how that plays into this, your new paper. So the moral of the story for me through all of this, right, that Jekyll and Hyde scenario with that kid was never skip the oat. Don't ever skip on doing the organic acid test and just assuming you know what it is based on symptoms, because uh, in this particular case, it was a total disaster. So you, you, you figure out, you identify HPHBA, you start to realize it's produced by different types of clostridia, including clostridia botulinum, and then it's linked to this phenylpropionic acid. So we're clearly we have imbalance in the microbiome, these overexpressions of these clostridia bacteria. And let's talk about the, one of the things I've lectured a lot about, learned it from you, was the inhibition of dopamine beta hydroxylase is very important enzyme in the nervous system. And then of course we get, you know, increases of dopamine and some of the consequences. So let's talk about that. Explain to me how you made that connection and then let's get into your new paper. So what was the connection between HPHBA and dopamine beta hydroxylase and what types of patients does that fit into? Yes. So, yeah. So that was a very important, uh, a realization that that was going on. So, uh, so the advantage of the organic acid test is it it measures the uh, major metabolites of uh, dopamine, which uh, the major metabolite is abbreviated as HVA, homovanillic acid, and the uh, and the product of dopamine beta hydroxylase, which is VMA, vanillyl amandelic acid. So by looking so in one test, we could see 
what was happening to the clostridia compounds at the same time seeing what was happening to dopamine. And so what I, what I was saying is that the higher the clostridia, the higher the dopamine values became. And that in reviewing the literature, I found out the high dopamine was something that had been reported, I mean, consistently over a period of 50 years. So it was amazing to me that this, that, you know, researchers didn't jump on this. And and a matter of fact, some of the people have said, you know, part of this had to do with, you know, the DNA people being at the National Institutes of Health, you know, so an inordinate amount of research was being focused that way, and autism was being uh, 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 ignored because, uh, if you know, except with uh, looking at the possibility that autism might be genetic, and of course, the latest data show that perhaps fifteen percent at most uh, may be. Uh, 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 involved with uh, genetic, eighty-five percent is non-genetic. So, um, so, uh, so people are hopeful. There's a new NIH director who has a, uh, a son with autism, and there hope that perhaps there'll be uh, a, a switch and more focus uh, to resolve autism, which I think is now completely within the reach to. Um, nearly completely eliminate. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I mean, we'll see. I'm not sure I'd hold my breath on that, but uh, <laughs> we'll <laughs> see. Um, so one of the things I've seen is elevations of dopamine. We know it, we get the metabolites of, the quinone metabolites, you know, which have neurotoxic effects. And we generate a lot of reactive oxygen species. You get depletion of, neuronal glutathione and then neurodegeneration. So we're talking, you know, we're talking more than just autism, right? Because you start- Yeah, so, yeah. so, so it, it, you know, it ends up that this HVHVA, once I, once we started expanding the scope of the patient uh, and physicians, physicians who use the testing, we found it virtually every neuropsychiatric disease there was a uh, a significant percentage of the patients who had the problem with the clostridia, and it's not surprising if since clostridia causes elevated dopamine, elevated dopamine is the target for the neuropsychiatric uh, drugs like uh, haloperidol, one of the uh, the uh, uh, first neuropsychiatric drugs, is blocking. Uh, dopamine receptors, and they, why did dopamine receptors have to be blocked? Because there's too much. So, so this is probably one of the most important scientific discoveries of the time. But because of the huge uh, influence that the drug industry has, it's you know their 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 uh, focus is on on. Uh, on, on having psychiatrists spend more money on producing more expensive drugs and making a higher profit. And, and so that is, uh, uh, and I understand that, you know, if, if that's your job, you do your job, you can. But unfortunately, that job is, is uh, 
is not helping the, to uh, get at the underlying causes of many neuropsychiatric diseases. And just to give you an example of the ones that I've seen where very high values of the clostridia were present, ADHD, uh, the uh, uh, depression, uh, both uh, unipolar and bipolar, uh, and uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, seizure disorders, uh, uh, so uh, uh, anorexia nervosa. And so you can see, like an anorexia nervosa, the, 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 if the person has severe clostridia, uh, the clostridia is produced from amino acids that are in meat proteins. So the person won't eat meat. It's not because the person is trying to make life hard for the uh, parents or something like that. Mm. They realize that anytime they eat meat, the more clostridia is formed that messes with their brain. And so it's a defensive mechanism. Uh, and, and the solution, of course, is to get rid of the clostridia. And then the person will be able to uh, eat meat. I've actually found... Uh, clostridia in, in some cases to be associated with, I wouldn't say it's direct cause of all, of individuals with, you know, postural orthostatic tachycardia, you know, forms of dysautonomia, or at least exa exacerbating it, and exercise intolerance. I had a case once of a woman who had poor exercise tolerance going back to when she was a teenager. Now, it turned out that she had some genetic variants in the dopamine beta-hydroxylase uh, gene and the way that the enzyme was expressed. But on top of that, when she had a clostridia problem, it just exacerbated the problem. So it's so important. But Bill, I would say that it's it, it, it it's not one of the most significant medical discoveries of the past. It's one of the most significant medical discoveries ever. And it still is very, very important um, even today. And, and particularly now with a new paper that you've written. And uh, it's a paper that I find extremely important. Uh, once we this podcast is posted, I'll make sure to put the link for people to be able to access that paper. So the paper is dealing now with HPHBA, which we know has been along. We've talked about this. You've been talking about this for many years. Of course, the link to dopamine beta hydroxylase issues, excess dopamine, et cetera. But now your research has taken you into a different area in looking at how the elevated HPHPA, um, maybe you can explain a little bit more about some of the phenylpropionic acid, um, if there's other organic acids that are sort of similar in their structure, using up coenzyme A, which then affects fatty acid metabolism. And that has a huge impact, we know, from metabolic efficiency, mitochondrial function, but it Specifically, you're looking at palmitic acid. So, tell us about your new paper and some of the new discoveries. Let's let's go down. Yeah. So, so they uh, so that was one of the benefits of my selling the company Great Plains Laboratory and then becoming uh, an employee is I had a lot of free time, and a lot of free time was necessary to do all the literature research. Yeah that's needed to see what is everybody else in the world doing. And I found really, uh, so one of the most useful thing is were papers in metabolomics, which means that people look at every single compound that's present in the urine and, 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 and people with autism and see 
uh, what are the ones there? And what are the ones there were ones that I already knew. So if uh, several of the labs had found HBHBA was, uh, if a person had positive HBHBA and a few of its metabolites, there was a 98% certainty that person had autism. And, uh, and, and so that was extremely important. Uh, and uh, also they had uh, found that another chemical, a, a really basic biochemical that doesn't seem to be specific at all was the most important compound for determining how severe autism was. And that was palmitic acid, the chemical that comes from palm oil, so, you know, from, which is from palm trees. And, 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 and the reason I was so impressed was because two research groups that were thousands of miles apart, probably who had never spoken to each other, both found that palmitic acid was found in, in uh, about 90% of children with autism. Uh, so these one lab was in Italy and the other lab was in uh, Pakistan. So, so both of them found this was not found. There was no detectable palmitic acid and normal children, but there was large amounts. And the higher the palmitic acid in the urine, the more severe the autism. So this blew my mind that something uh, so uh, uh, commonplace was one of the uh, major factors in autism. As a matter of fact, I recalled that maybe in the, when I first setting up the lab that I had seen palmitic acid I thought it was maybe it was a uh, an artifact that mm. how could this thing be so uh, I, th I I at that time I didn't know that I thought fatty acids weren't found in you which of course in normal people they're not and so I, I thought it maybe it was a uh, artifact that palmitic acid was present in a child with autism. So now it. You also it mentioned in your article too that there was nothing to believe that a a diet of a, an autistic individual's diet was higher in palmitic acid compared to other individuals. It wasn't right, right. They were eating super amounts of it. No, no, they weren't. They weren't. No, they weren't eating right. uh, high amounts of, of of that at all. So, so since there was no indication that they were eating high amounts, it had to be that their metabolism was different. And, and, um, and, and, and so I tried to put those things together, the, high, the fact that uh, HBHVA was one of the most common elevations in autism, uh, and, uh, and, and palmitic acid was also. And, and so uh, I had to go back to my, so one of my, uh, talents is is be able to develop metabolic pathways for which nobody else had published you know to make to come up with new metabolic pathways and so that's what I did using the HPHBA figuring out that since it comes from phenylpropionic acid and it's well known that phenylpropionic acid had to be broken down by what's called the uh, beta oxidation pathway of fatty acid breakdown, and and um, and this was something that had been known for about a uh, 130 years, 
that this is how certain fatty acids are. So phenylpropionic acid, in addition to be something that messed up dopamine, also messed up the breakdown of fatty acids. So it used up one of the key vitamin um, coenzymes in the body. So to break down phenylpropionic acids, the body was using up um, almost all its coenzyme A, which is a critical cofactor uh, in all of human metabolism, and not only human, all of animal metabolism, probably going all the way back to even you know, uh, uh, bacteria and yeast metabolism. So all of life depends on this uh, coenzyme, having adequate amounts of coenzyme A. And since uh, since having high phenylpropionic acid was going to use this all up, it was going to cause a uh, a deficiency of of um, of uh, coenzyme A because all the coenzyme A would be attached to the clostridia compound. And so it wouldn't be available for doing probably about a hundred other biochemical reactions in the body that need coenzyme A. And those include making cholesterol, for example. Kids with autism have deficient cholesterol. Um, having uh, not enough uh, acetylcholine, it's another thing in which there's evidence that that's deficient. And acetylcholine is important for the brain, but also for the um, uh, muscle function as well. Uh, so in the brain, not having enough, it, it impairs memory if there's not enough acetylcholine. But it's also needed to make new fatty acids. It's need, needed for breaking down amino acids. It's needed for producing energy and ATP. So it has so many functions. So if the clostridia is there, it's going to really mess things up. And, and, and so uh, the other thing is palmitic acid is needed um, uh, uh, or coenzyme A is needed to activate palmitic acid so that the palmitic acid can be uh, broken down or transferred to a key uh, developmental protein called Sonic Hedgehog, which is named after the, the uh, uh, video game, the Sonic Hedgehog, which is a, like a, a porcupine-looking rodent animal that's blue-colored. And, uh, and, and, and so uh, if the coenzyme A is not available, palmitic acid can't be attached and utilized. And if it can't be utilized, it'll be excreted in the, in the urine in excessive amounts. So th that's exactly what I think is going on. So the kids with uh, 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 autism who have a, uh, have a defective sonic hedgehog, uh, the high, they will have more sonic hedgehog than than normal children, but it's all defective sonic hedgehog. So, so Bill, let me, before we move on to that, let me just kind yeah. of recap. So yeah, got, yeah, that's got, I know it's a bit, it's a, a lot of stuff. That's okay, it's a lot of stuff, but it's great, really important. So we've got clostridia. Okay, so we've got these various clostridia that that we come in contact with, can develop in the microbiome, certain susceptible individuals. We mentioned before that glyphosate can be a component of this. 
causing a depletion of healthy microbiome bacteria and allowing for an overexpression of these pathogenic bacteria. So we're producing HPHPA, and we're getting a lot of this, and it's it's sequestering, it's using up a lot of that coenzyme A. Now, coenzyme A comes from B5. So maybe we can come back to that, you know, towards the end. But so, and we know that coenzyme A is used metabolically through many different areas of the body. So it plays a big role, let's just say, in metabolism and ATP production. And then because of a lack of coenzyme A, we're getting an accumulation of palmitic acid. So palmitic acid can't, it can't attach appropriately to enough coenzyme A, so it can't enter its fatty acid metabolism pathway. And then we have an issue with sonic hedgehog. Now, sonic hedgehog is a protein that I learned about from you in relationship that it's very important for neurological development, for digit formation, for limbs. And I think what's important for people to understand about sonic hedgehog, it's not just something that's produced as in an embryo or when you're a young child, it's something that is being produced throughout our life Right, for your entire life. To yeah. maintain this, this normal or these structural components of our body. So we've got lack of we've got high HPHBA, lack of free coenzyme A, too much palmitic acid that can't attach to the coenzyme A, and now we have inactivation or a lack of activation of sonic hedgehog. So you were mentioning in autism, the studies have actually shown elevated sonic hedgehog, but you're stating, well, that's the inactive form, essentially. Is that is that the idea? Right. Yeah, that and 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 of course that will be the ultimate proof that the theory is correct. We'll be testing the sonic hedgehog and finding out that it's all sonic hedgehog without palmitic acid attached to it. So it would be just like the feedback loop with thyroid. So uh, the thyroid gland produces T4 in response to uh, the pituitary hormone TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. And if there is a, uh, if the thyroid gland doesn't produce T4 because say there's a deficiency of iodine. So there's no, say there's no iodine in the diet. So the thyroid gland can't produce T4. What happens? TSH gets higher and higher and higher. So this is my theory as right. what must be going on in autism, that the uh, uh, sonic hedgehog is a, a, a being produced to, to to do this, the, the kinds of things it needs to do in order for development to occur. But because palmitic acid is missing, at, that is one of the reasons that the, the, the sonic hedgehog being produced is all defective. Just like, you know, if you had, um, uh, if you had, for example, if TSH was defective, and, and the uh, pituitary was producing it, it wouldn't stimulate the thyroid gland. And so there'd be more and more defective TSH produced because, because none of it was working. So that, in effect, is what's going on. And the higher the TSH, excuse me, and, and in autism, the higher the sonic hedgehog, the more severely uh, abnormal the child is. Is there any evidence... Um... 
I'm tr- I'm sorry. I'm adjusting my screen here. I got this weird light coming through my window. But um, any evidence? Oh yeah, I see it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just right across my ear. So any <laughs> evidence that inactive sonic hedgehog is somehow damaging itself? Kind of like I'm wondering if sonic hedgehog breaks down into some toxic metabolite like dopamine breaks down into quinone. Is there any? Uh, well, I mean, so uh, this protein, I don't think people know the exact half-life. So even normal sonic hedgehog is going to break down after a period of time. And then the amino acids that make up the protein will be recycled. Um, and uh, I, you know, it it might well be toxic, but I think the biggest problem is just that it's non-functional. Right. I think that's the that's the, uh, the the biggest problem. But the future research will determine that. You know, so I see this as an explosive. Uh, uh, research, or it should be an explosion of research into uh, the function. Almost all of the research today is just looking at its role in cancer. That's almost all the research. And it it has a role in cancer as well. So, so which will be interesting to find out uh, if it can be used as a cancer modulation. So you mentioned uh, coenzyme and cholesterol. So we've got HPHPA, we have now sequestering of coenzyme A, we've got dysregulation of other biochemical pathways, one of them being cholesterol. We can't connect enough palmitic acid to coenzyme A to enter its metabolism pathway, so we have a buildup of palmitic acid. And then that affects sonic hedgehog. So we have this inactive sonic hedgehog. But then you mentioned cholesterol. So there's another component to activating sonic uh, sonic hedgehog. It's the palmitic right, right, yeah. So uh, so one end one end of the sonic hedgehog, and it's called the N-terminal. So every protein has a amino group at one end and a carboxyl group at the a free carboxyl at the other end. Every single protein and you know of every living thing of every protein. So the palmitic acid attaches to the nitrogen end of the molecule in order to activate it. The cholesterol attaches to the carboxyl end, and and the lack of either one of those makes it inactive. And so that is something that has been proven, that if these things are not attached, the molecule does not function correctly. That is, I mean, that's something that's not theory, that's a proven fact. Very interesting. And then I'm curious with regards to let's perhaps, you know, beyond autism, for example, are there other, we mentioned cancer as well. Do you know of any other mechanisms of sonic hedgehog that maybe in an adult with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or some other type of neurological condition where there is some type of imbalance with sonic hedgehog inactivation? That right. could be- yeah. So uh, yeah, you're right. So so any of the, the same things that happen to the person with autism are likely going to happen to any uh, of the people with these neuropsychiatric diseases uh, that where the sonic hedgehog is not being activated correctly, where it's not functioning uh, correctly. 
So it's fascinating. So Sonic Hedgehog is probably one of the uh, uh, major proteins in evolution. You know, it's probably why, you know, the whales have, you know, if you, I remember as a kid at the museum seeing that whales have little tiny hind feet that are just vestigial. Uh, so at one time, you know, the ancestor of the whale had, you know, four legs. But now, you know, those legs have been converted to fins. And they've probably been converted by changes in sonic hedgehog. So changes in sonic hedgehog over the thousands of years have pro uh, probably the one of the main uh, uh, the, the main mechanisms of, uh, you know, evolution of life on Earth. Very, very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of mechanisms. We were talking earlier. We'll see where the research this is something I'm looking into is, is palmitic acid uh, is a known activator of some of the toll-like receptors that are part of the innate immune system. And then that sequencing, you know, to transcription activation of NF-kappa B and inflammatory markers. And one of the other things, too, about that from a neuroinflammatory standpoint in your article and what's known in autism particularly is big issues in the cerebellum. And so, you know, the cerebellum is often dysregulated in autism from a proprioceptive standpoint. And I believe it was in your article, you mentioned that the Purkinje cells produce sonic hedgehog um, right. as a means of developing normal stru structural integrity and connections within the cerebellum. So there is just so much there, Bill, that is already known, but I think it's such incredible research and insights that you that you've come up with. Um, I've read your paper twice. I'll probably read it again because uh, there's there's a ton of information in there and a lot of other areas to start thinking about. One of the other things you commented about was acetaminophen, and oh. we have talked a lot about this in the past and some of the toxicity of acetaminophen and the compounds it produces. Tell us a little bit about acetaminophen and its connection to this discussion. Yeah, so uh, the acetaminophen has uh, several metabolites, and the most toxic of these metabolites is uh, uh, it, it is a, it's a, ha a handful to say completely. So I use the abbreviation NAPQI, and I call it NAPQI, just to make it a, a simple word to remember. And NAPQI is the thing that causes when, uh, so um, uh, acetaminophen is one of the major uh, causes of uh, 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 liver failure, deaths from liver failure from taking excessive amounts. And the thing that is the probably the main factor is the NAPQI. So the NAPQI is a very reactive molecule that reacts with uh, sulfhydro groups. That's, that's groups that have a, a sulfur a group attached. And, and what do you think the, uh, the, the very end uh, amino acid of sonic hedgehog has this sulfur group. So it is a, uh, a target for the uh, NAPQI. And it's been found that NAPQI can react with, um, to my knowledge, every single protein which it's been studied 
it has the ability to react and inactivate those proteins with their uh, inactivating their sulfur group. So if it reacts like that, and I think the evidence would be very strong that it would, since it reacts with every other protein, it wouldn't make sense that it would not react with um, uh, sonic hedgehog. So if it reacted with that, then palmitic acid could no longer be attached. So you would have a, a dysfunctional molecule in which the molecule had a drug attached to it instead of the mm -hmm. uh, what nature intended, which is a palmitic acid. Uh, so what about, uh, which then raises the question about heavy metals. If you think about mercury, lead. Yes, mercury would be another one. So that's another one. To, so mercury also has the ability uh, to bind to that sulfur group on the end of uh, so and and so all of these molecules can now be looked at using mass spectrometry. You could look at sonic hedgehog containing mercury, sonic hedgehog containing uh, napki, and also one of the other clostridium metabolites called cresol also forms a benzoquinone that's very similar to napki that will also react with that uh, in. Uh, that end sulfhydro group on uh, sonic hedgehog. So you're getting, so what you're saying then is in an individual who has, and I see this quite a lot, elevated HBHBA and for creosol, it's, it's a double whammy effect almost. That's right. And in, then, in, then, in then, a different then, way, but on that sonic hedgehog. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. they're, so, uh, so all three things, the mercury, the uh, the uh, napki from the uh, acetaminophen and the uh, cresol from the clostridia. All all three of these uh, have the ability to inactivate this uh, sonic hedgehog. So so there really is a critical need for this to be dealt with, like the way that the government dealt dealt with the COVID vaccine. Put a tremendous effort. I mean, you know, business as usual to me is is uh, is is a, is a a, uh, a big problem. You know, it's estimated that the uh, untreated that the uh, autism is going to cost uh, something like five trillion dollars a year for uh, uh, to handle all because you know when children are little, the parents are going to, but eventually. The parents aren't going to be able to do it anymore, and the children will have to be yeah. will be adults who are going to have to be taken care of by the government. And so, a huge uh, amount of the uh, of the government of governments throughout the world are going to be affected like this unless uh, something is done. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's so an absolute disaster. Yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, it's an absolute. I I I totally agree. It's 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 a. I mean, I've been at this for over twenty five years, and you even longer, and it's getting worse. It's 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 getting worse. It's not yeah. getting better. Um, yeah. The incidence was in the uh, around nineteen seventy. The incidence was one about one in ten thousand, and now it's gone up to uh, I think the 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 last word was one in thirty six. 
and California, one in 13 boys. So you're talking about a tremendous yeah. uh, increase in the rate of autism. And of course, some people try to claim that it is uh, it's just increased diagnosis, but other people have have made uh, arguments just as convincing that it's real, that it is not. There is some degree of better diagnosis. But if it was all better diagnosis, then then you would say there, there would have been a lot of 70-year-old people who were never diagnosed. If we went to the <laughs> went yeah. around, we would find all these undiagnosed autism older adults, but we don't find them because they're not there. So, Bill, you know, as we wrap this up, I mean, it's a it's a lot of information to to take in, but we we clearly know that acetaminophen use, for example, right, really not a good idea. Um, certainly, don't want to be preloading kids with acetaminophen prior to their shots and staying away from it as much as possible. Clearly, the glyphosate is an ongoing, you know, problem, um, which unfortunately I don't see going away anytime soon. And we know that that clearly is something that disrupts the the gut, disrupts the microbiome. The expression of these clostridia bacteria, the HPHBA, and now we've got the palmitic acid, the cholesterol, the sonic hedgehog problem. You know, what can people do? And I, I know I'm not ex expecting you to have all the answers for this because it's ongoing research and development. Um, we know that we can you know, deal and treat with the clostridia and try to improve the microbiome status and eat organic food, non, you know, stay away from GMO food and those types of things. But when we're talking about fatty acid metabolism, one of the things that often helps is carnitine. You know, and I'm wondering if carnitine would be something that might preserve some of that coenzyme A that it's not yeah yeah, yeah that, that that would be an excellent idea so the carnitine uh also pantothenic acid is uh is like a, available from new beginnings that would uh that is as part of coenzyme A and studies have shown that uh a pantothenic acid is commonly deficient in the urine of children with autism so that seems like a uh, a logical thing that could be done. Uh, if if the children have low cholesterol, supplement with cholesterol. Uh, so cholesterol is not always bad. So low cholesterol is just as bad as uh, too high cholesterol. Um, so all of these things uh, need to be done. And probably the, mo the most important thing is never use acetaminophen, you know, yeah. use... Uh, and and studies have shown that mild fever actually is helps to overcome an illness. So uh, don't 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 even use analgesics if the fever is mild. Don't use it for every instance of fever, or if you have to use it, you can use ibuprofen instead, which doesn't have the uh, same uh, uh, autism. Uh, incidents associated with its use. So the studies shown at uh, great uh, John Hopkins is that ADHD and autism were both uh, significantly elevated if the mothers took acetaminophen in the pregnancy. And in those cases, every single kid um, who later developed autism had uh, elevated acetaminophen in their cord blood. So 
Uh, yeah, it's, I, it's uh, one of the things I recommend. You know, just people avoid. Particular, uh, it's it's just avoid it. Um, absolutely. Hey, one thing on the organic acid test, right? We often see elevated B five, so panathenic acid, and I'm wondering if that is, you know, coming from active supplementation, or is there some type of conversion problem, perhaps that's occurring in converting panathenic yeah. acid into its active form, because there's that panathenic acid kinase 2 enzyme, which I know the severe genetic mutation of that's quite rare, but, you know, there's always variants that may be existing. What What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so, it is, so um, panathenic acid could be, as, as you point out, if the conversion is not going correctly, but it, could, it might also... Um, it might also be because if the uh, uh, coenzyme, coenzyme A is not uh, is all being used up by that, that might cause a uh, uh, a blockade in the conversion. So I, I think it would be worthwhile to consider, uh, in addition to obviously to treating the clostridia, to avoiding. Um, the uh, uh, the uh, GMO foods, and I mean, it it may be very w- worthwhile to consider uh, supplementing with uh, pantothenic acid uh, as well. Coenzyme A itself is only available in tiny amounts from uh, biochemical companies, so it's probably. And then even if it was taken, I don't know if it would be absorbed into the body. So I don't know if that's an option. Perhaps it might be, but um, uh, and now it would be it would be too expensive to be uh, practical because uh, it's it's don't you know even you know it's hundreds of dollars for a few milligrams. Would you see any advantage in something like pantothene, uh, which is more of an active form, sort of like saying you know using more of an active yeah, yeah. so all of these things i think are worth yeah are worth investigating and are are very likely to be non-toxic in any way um, um one of the other things that you know i've thought about with the whole palmitic acid potential is would you advise for people to avoid palm oil in cooking if they don't know what their palmitic acid levels are maybe not so much the general population but in the autism population um, you know, if pe- people are using coconut oil or palm oil because it has a high smoke point, would that be advantageous to avoid? Maybe, you know, difficult to know. I know it's not been tested, but I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Well, the 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 palm oil really is is not toxic. It's just it is being uh, excreted because of the coenzyme A deficiency. So I don't know if there's any evidence that it, you know, would uh, be yeah. would be harmful. I mean, it would everything is worth investigating, but I, right. I would think that that uh, the the main factor is the deficiency of free coenzyme A and that resolving that problem you should so You'd be able if you start measuring palmitic acid in the urine, you could find out if you know uh, various treatments if they reduce the the palmitic acid in the urine, and so you could try that. But I have a feeling that the main factor is the 
um, deficiency of the coenzyme yeah. A. That's actually that's that's a great point. So, so um, any final thoughts? What other topics, other areas you're starting to look into and in research? Where, where is this taking you? I I think that at this point the the uh, the uh, main thing is is getting the word out about how common this clostridia thing, how how dangerous the the glyphosate, the Roundup is because of altering the uh, the uh, microbiome, uh, not only in the gut, it's 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 altering it in the human gut, but it's also altering in our. Uh, our, our animals, our food animals. Yeah. In Germany, they're finding cows who are eating the the contaminated uh, uh, feed that's containing Roundup were dying of botulism. And even some of the farmers uh, walking through the fields developed botulism. I know that I, we had one case where a child with high HbH3a was reported or was following up and found that he had died of botulism after a couple of weeks after the test showing high HPHVA. So botulism. Uh, so one of the things um, uh, scientifically would be uh, developing a confirmation test to find out which species of uh, clostridia are most prevalent. We know the ones that can produce phenylpropionic acid, but we don't know specifically which ones are the most common in autism and in other neuropsychiatric diseases. I, I thought about doing that. The difficulty with with botulism is it's been used as a terrorist weapon, and so it's very difficult to get uh, uh, cultures of Clostridia botulinum because of concern that it might fall into the hands of yeah, terrorists. You, you don't want to end up on the terror watch list, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, hey, Bill, it's been, I really appreciate it. It's been great information. Um, I'll make sure that people get access uh, to a link for your recent article. Of course, we know the organic acid test is a fundamental test. It's been a fundamental test in my practice for, you know, over well, ever since I started doing it 25 years ago and learning from you. So just want to thank you so much for all of your contributions over these uh, past many years and your continued desire to research and dig into the literature and, and try to find connections for these different types of complicated and complex disorders. So it's, it's very, it's great. It's very noble. And so, you know, you're to be congratulated for that. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate all your efforts too. Kurt. Well, thanks You've so much for great yeah, colleague. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Bill, and take care. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Doc Talk podcast with Dr. Kurt Wohler. For more information about this podcast, go to functionalmedicinedoctalk.com.